This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. The book of Ecclesiastes is kind of in the middle of your Bible, so... Uh... The middle of your Bible is typically considered Psalms, so if you just kind of go to the center and uh, then take a right, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and you will end up at Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be friends with Ecclesiastes, we're going to get to know him well, and, um, and he is going to mess with our world, I promise you that. Um, I'm really, I, normally when I start a series, I say, I am so looking forward to this series. I'm not saying that this time, I'm saying I am so sobered by this series. After studying for really months this book and considering it, the, probably the best commentary, one of the best commentaries in the book, I didn't open until this week after I'd already committed to preaching this. And uh, his opening line was, Ecclesiastes is the hardest book of the Bible to preach. So I, I just want to have you uh, enter in with me. And like in Olympic diving, you get credit for degree of difficulty of the dive. And so if you do a bad dive, but it's really difficult, you could still get a solid B, maybe an A minus on your dive. So if the sermons stink over the next months, I want you to know it's really hard. Okay. So I want you to know that and be impressed with that. The series is called, what's the point? What's the point? Because in the coming weeks, we want to consider what the Bible has to say about what's the point really of everything. Ultimately, what's the point of life? Um, The following is a very, very edited, like I'm going to read you very briefly what is nine pages of interaction on an internet forum that I read under this title, What's the Point of Life? What's the point of life? Here's what the first commenter writes. We're born into an unfathomable existence on a tiny patch of space called Earth that is itself a speck of dust in the galaxy that is a speck of dust in the infinite universe. And not only that, but during your entire lifespan, you will die on an even smaller patch of space on that Earth. This is just a guy on an internet forum board, not an author. So, he writes, since life is an inexplicable mystery and a torture chamber, how cruel is it that we are alive? The more I think of it, the more I realize that religion does not bring meaning to life, but rather consolidates the meaninglessness of it all. He goes on to write, what's the point of waking up every morning? From that point on, it seems as suicide is the best way to cork out your brain. No responsibility, no depression, no aspirations, no worries or anything else. Isn't that the perfect drug? How vain it all is. Every human category, this commenter says, every category is vain. Love, sex, art, etc. People getting fatter, people getting leaner. Movies, learning, working. Why? Who asked that something, that something to bring me and countless others who wonder about the same question to that existence? Why not just give it all to us at the outset? At least in that case, the meaninglessness could be worth something until you're dead. He's saying the the, the something that brought us to life. Why not just tell us what it's all about at the outset so that we have something to live for before we're dead? So he goes on and on, and then he makes a statement about, I'm not depressed, do not give me medical advice, etc., etc., because someone's going to certainly jump on the forum. The first guy who responds to him says, I understand exactly how you feel. says a bunch of stuff. And then he says, what is the point of indulging the mystery of life? It won't change what is going to happen to you or give, you, give your life any meaning. As for life being what you make of it, does it really matter what I make of it? If I become the greatest and most famous person to ever live, what will that change for me? Sounds like a couple of college kids thinking about life, a little bit of time on their hands, a little bit of deep thinking, going back and forth, 
Sounds like someone who could be a bit angst-ridden, a bit troubled, a bit cautious, a bit empty. But actually, when you think about it, it sounds most of all like the Bible. That, that's the Bible. The, these guys are articulating Ecclesiastes. When I read this, I was shocked. I thought, well, maybe this guy knows the Bible, because he is articulating the exact argument of the author named Ecclesiastes. Look in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes and listen to what the Bible says and how much it mirrors the common experience of thinking individuals on the earth, especially those two in that internet form. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It's, all, it's been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that speaks to us in familiar and in some cases unusual ways. Lord, we thank you for the honesty and truthfulness of your word, and we submit ourselves to your word today, and we ask that you speak to us and that you show us the Lord Jesus Christ that our eyes might be full of reality in a world that is so gripped with meaningless. Lord, fill me with your spirit to declare this truth and give me strength, I pray. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes really sounds a lot like the thinking of of our world today. Ecclesiastes is a little bit different sort of literature. So I want to comment a little bit about what kind of literature this is before we jump into it, and a little bit about who the author is, uh, and then we'll jump in and see what his argument is in this first poem. He opens up really with a poem uh, to the book. Uh, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. You don't hear wisdom literature preached very much. I have never preached wisdom literature in the Bible, which is to my shame. Uh, it's kind of a part of the Bible that I've just never taught. Wisdom literature is like the book of Proverbs, uh, the book of Job, uh, the book of Song of Songs, or the book of Ecclesiastes. These are what's called wisdom literature. And wisdom literature in the Bible doesn't deal with the works of God. It doesn't deal like much of the Old Testament with the activity of God. It's not about uh, the kings in battle. Um, it's not about taking over nations. Uh, it's not about particular leaders and how God brings redemptive work through them. Wisdom literature is not about worship in the temple. A lot of the Old Testament talks us to us about worship in the temple. The wisdom literature is not about that either. Wisdom literature is primarily about how to live life in God's ordered creation. Wisdom literature is about how to make sense of life. And sometimes wisdom literature just sort of messes with us because it comes and it takes what we assume life is all, is all about and it turns it on its head. So, for instance, that's the purpose of Job. The purpose of Job is to come to people who think, well, if you do the right thing and believe the right thing, good things will happen to you. If you're a righteous person, life will go well to you. That was the common wisdom of the day. And Job comes and says, wrong. The most righteous person on the earth gets his life trashed by God. 
So it just turns everything upside and it just says God is sovereign, God is glorious, he has a plan that I do not know and do not understand. Or the book of Ecclesiastes, which sort of, the the author of Ecclesiastes, he just sort of grabs us a little bit and, and just begins, especially in this first section, to talk to us about the apparent meaninglessness of life. So the b- wisdom literature in the Bible is to show us how is life to be ordered, what's the purpose of life, and what is the nature of the God who rules over his created order. The author of Ecclesiastes ultimately is unknown. In verse 1, it says the words of the preacher. He calls himself the preacher, or he is called the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This word preacher is often, if you read anything on Ecclesiastes, you'll see this. He's often referred to by the Hebrew word, which is translated preacher, which is Koheleth. Koheleth. So frequently he's just called Koheleth says this, Koheleth says that. Koheleth uh, translated into Greek as the word Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes is not the title of the book, it's the name of a dude. Or it's really not his personal name, it's more like the title of a guy. Preacher. Ecclesiastes is a guy. Uh, he is called the preacher. And the reason it's called the preacher is because this word Koheleth means to assemble or to gather. To gather or assemble, Koheleth, it means to assemble. To shop at Ikea, to assemble. This is what Koheleth means. You must put it together yourself. This kind of assembler is the guy who assembles people together, he convenes people together, and then he teaches them. So because of that, they call him a preacher because he's the kind of guy who is speaking a message of wisdom to those who gather to hear what he has to say. He has an audience, and he is teaching this audience wisdom from God. Now, he identifies himself not only as the convener, not only as the preacher, but also the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Son of David could be literal. It could be literally one of his sons, or it could just be a king. All kings were called, the son, they were in the role of the son of David. So historically, many have assumed that this is the writing of Solomon, not only because he calls himself a son of David, but because Ecclesiastes is autobiographical. And when you look at the story of the guy's life, it seems to match Solomon. He seems to describe a life of a guy who had more money, more sex, more pleasure, more fame, more power, more houses, more gardens, more knowledge, more of everything. The preacher is just moss at every, every level of life. And so many think it's probably Solomon because that would reflect his life. It's, it sort of surprised me to know that probably the majority of even conservative, like I believe this is the literal word of God and I'm quaking before it type of scholars, uh, question whether it's Solomon. Um, so there's some question about that. There are linguistic reasons we won't get into as to why many think it was written much later than the time of Solomon. Um, But regardless, uh, I'm going to feel free to refer to him as Solomon uh, throughout. I think that's a fair fair assumption or call him Koheleth or the preacher or whatever. So what is the point of this guy Ecclesiastes and his book? What is his point? Well, it's found in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So he starts the book speaking about vanity, and he concludes the book speaking about vanity. Chapter 12, the last chapter of the book in verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this term vanity is going to be used 38 times. It is just all over the place, and it is his theme. It is his big idea from the book. The big idea of the book is that life is vain. That is the big point that he is making in the book. Now, what does he mean that life is vain? When we use the word vain, we often speak or think of pride. Uh, Like a vain person is a conceited person. A vain person is someone who's looking in the mirror all the time. Uh, You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Uh, For those in the room who are 40 years old and over, uh, that reference may mean something to you. Uh, And if it doesn't, just meaningless, okay? Vanity, vanity. So he says, you're so vain. So we think of that. That is not what is meant here. 
Actually, the word vanity is an interpretive word because really the word is literally vapor or smoke or breath. So any translation you have, and this is important, the reason I'm camping on this is because this is what the whole book is about. So we need to get this vanity down in week one because we're going to talk about it every week. So, uh, which is really promising, you'll want to come back and invite your friends. Actually, you should. I think this will be the most evangelistic series we've ever done in the history of the church. I think this book is the most evangelistic book, well, maybe, not ne- maybe next to John, that we have done in the history of the church. So please do invite your friends. But vanity means vapor. And so whenever there's a translation of the word, what they're doing is interpreting the metaphor. Uh, and it can be interpreted a few ways. It, it is, it, one way to interpret it is the idea of something that is fleeting. So if you think about breathing out on a freezing day and your breath appears for a minute, that's a vapor. That's smoke. That, that's the idea that James has. In James 4.14, James writes, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James says, here's your life. You're here for a little bit and then you're gone. What does he mean? He's using mist, smoke, vapor. What does he mean? That life is brief. And Ecclesiastes would say, life is brief and hard and meaningless and then you die. That's what he would say. But life is brief is what James says. Life is brief. It is fleeting. But it means something more than that as well. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the book is not just about the brevity of life. That theme comes up. But there's something more. If you breathe out on a freezing day and you try to grab it, you see your breath appear and you try to grab it, that's more what's going on in Ecclesiastes. It's elusive. You can't grab a hold of life. It's not substantial. It's wispy. It's light. It's meaningless. That's how the NIV translates it. The NIV says, meaningless, meaningless, all is utterly meaningless. So that's the idea too. Life is brief, but life, you can't grip it. You can't grasp it. It's not substantive. It has no purpose. It has no meaning. That's what he is talking about as well. It is futile. Sometimes you see it translated that way. Futility of futilities. Life is is futile. Now, Ecclesiastes is not going to poke his head up and sort of troll and just toss out this little bomb, this little depression bomb, and then run away. What he's going to do is he's going to say life is vain, futile, uh, fleeting. It's a vapor. He's going to say all this kind of stuff, and he's going to take 12 chapters, and he's going to take everything that man men and women typically pursue meaning in, and he's going to show they're utterly meaningless. And he's going to show how you may think you've had money, you know nothing compared to me. You may think you've had women, you know nothing compared to me. You may think you got a big house, you know nothing compared to me. That's what he's going to do. He's going to take his experience, and he's going to show how I've had it all, and the, here's the result. It's a breath on a freezing day and trying to capture it. That's what life is. He's going to prove it over and over and over and over. That is the point of what he has to say. And here's his first point. In this first poem, this is kind of a poem, verses 2 to 11. In his first poem that life is meaningless, here's his first exhibit. Look at verse 3. Vanity of vanity, so life is meaningless, it's wispy, it's brief. Verse 3, what does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun. So here's his first proof that life has no meaning. His first proof is to ask a rhetorical question. What do we get? What do we profit? What do we, verse three, what do we gain by all our hard work? What's the implied answer? Nothing. That's his answer. We get nothing. For all of our hard work, we get nothing. Toil is strenuous labor. We give ourselves, for however long you live and however long you're able to work, we give ourselves to strenuous labor for all of our life, 20, 40, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. We give our lives to all this, and what do we get from it? What do we gain? What's the profit? What do we have to show for it? Nothing. In the words of the immortal Hoyt Axton, 
in the 70s. He sang, work your fingers to the bone. And what do you get? Bony fingers. Do you know that song? Work your fingers to the bone. And what do you get? Bony fingers. That's Ecclesiastes. You work your fingers to the bone. And what do you have to show for it? You have nothing. The drudgery of hard work is pointless. There's nothing to gain is what he sell, says. We don't profit. We don't benefit. We're not, he's going to show in a minute, we're not changed. No one's changed. We give ourselves to work. So what's his proof that life is meaningless? Just look at your work. Come to the men's work seminar. Here it is. Ecclesiastes will be leading it. And uh, he will say, don't bother because you get nothing from it. However, there is one qualifier in verse 3. There is one qualifier that if we miss this, we will miss the point of the whole book. That he doesn't just say that life is full of drudgery and toil that's meaningless. He says something else. He says, verse 3, What does man, man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun. Ecclesiastes is going to use this phrase, under the sun, 29 times in the book. And what under the sun is, is it is his frame of reference. It is his worldview. It is his scope of inquiry. He's not saying, ultimately, what is the meaning of life in all the universe? He's saying, what is the meaning of life under the sun? For you see, there is an under the sun reality... And there is an above-the-sun reality. When he says under the sun, what he means is what we would call in the New Testament the world. The world. Or we could say it this way, horizontal existence. He's saying horizontally, everything is worthless, meaningless, quick, brief, empty. He's, He's not speaking vertically. He's not giving us God's point of view, ultimately. He is giving us his point of view. And and there are, I can't even get into this, there are so many pages of debate over whether he really believes that. Is this Solomon despondent at the end of his life? Is this a king who's gone, uh, who's committed apostasy and really no longer believes? Or is this a guy who's just setting us up? It's just a big setup so that you really can understand what under the sun is and you sort of get it. He doesn't tip his hand yet as to whether he really believes this or whether he's parroting something else. But we need to read it at face value. At face value, everything is meaningless under the sun. So in other words, what we could say, if under the sun is a code, it's a code for life without God. It's a code for horizontal existence. What he's really saying in verse 3 is, apart from God, we gain nothing from all our toil. That's life under the sun. And we live our lives, so much of our lives, under the sun, and sadly, often with the philosophy under the sun as well. The preacher says that apart from God, we gain nothing from all of our toil. And now he's going to build his case. He's kind of writing in a poetic form here, but he's going to build his case. Here's the first point. Life is meaningless. Exhibit number one, you gain nothing from your work. And now he's going to prove his point. Look at verse four. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Here's his first idea that's proven his point. The natural world does not change. And so that shows that life is meaningless, and that shows that your contribution to the planet and to the life to life is meaningless because you affect no change. Generations make no change. Look what he says, verse 4. A generation comes, a generation goes. He, he almost is anticipating in verse three, where he says, all, uh, everything, uh, all work gains nothing. There's no profit. He almost anticipates that someone could step up and say, well, here's the reality. We're preparing a better world for the next generation. You hear that kind of thing. We're here laying a foundation for the next generation. We want to leave the world a better place than we found it for the next generation. Here's what uh, Koheleth says. He says, uh, no, 
One generation comes, another one goes, the earth is unchanged. Nothing really changes from one generation. This generation is vapor, and guess what? It's replaced by another vapor generation. Only the earth remains unchanged, is what he says. Generation goes, generation comes, the earth remains forever. The early church father, Jerome, said, What is more vain than this vanity? The earth, which was made for humans, stays. But humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into the dust. It's a vanity, he says. We come, the earth is for us. We come to lord over the earth, we dissolve into the earth. That's the view of life under the sun now. Life under the sun. We see activity in nature, but there's no real change. So generations come and go, there's no change. We see this in nature as well. Look what he says in verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying when you see the sun, and we understand the earth revolves around the sun, but from a point of view of just our perspective, we see the sun rise and we see the sun set. And guess what happens tomorrow? The sun rises and the sun sets. We see the sunrise, it's beautiful, we see it, it comes up at midday, it's hot, we see it go down, it's a glorious sunset. So it looks like commotion, it looks like progress, it looks like activity, but tomorrow the sun rises, the sun sets. The same thing over and over, there's no change, is what he says. Look what else he says, look at the wind, verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around it goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. He's saying the same thing, wind, I mean this is the windy time of the year in Dallas, wind makes a big commotion, wind's active, wind's moving, surely there's progress, surely there's activity, no, it'll just cease and come back and the same thing will happen tomorrow sun will go east to west, the winds will go north to south, he says there. He's looking at nature, and he's saying when you see the rhythm of nature, what you see is meaningless. You see monotony. You see no progress. What's really progressing is the sun's going up and down. Generations come and go. The earth stays the same. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What's he saying? You could see a rushing river. And it looks like, wow, that's activity, that's power. That's, sometimes you can see a rapids, and there's power in that river. It's glorious. It's just going to empty into the sea. And you know what? The sea just looks the same. The sea doesn't overflow. Nothing really changes. All this activity for what? End up in the sea that looks exactly the same. It looked the same to your parents and to your grandparents. It looked the same to, um, it looked the same to Solomon as it does to us. So this is this point. That, that there's no change. How do we know that our work is meaningless? Just look around at nature. There's nothing that is really changing. The rising and setting sun, the blowing wind, the flowing streams, activity, but no change. And he's given us a poetic picture. That's your work. That's your toil. Activity, you get up, you work, at the, then you die. No change. Another generation comes. The work, activity, momentum. It appears like there's momentum, but there's no change. Then he, second point is in verse 8. So first of all, he says, look at nature and you see there's no change. Secondly, he says, look at human experience and you'll see there's no change. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He says, when you look at life, it's just wearying. Now, you're going you're to realize when you read Ecclesiastes, at point times, sometimes you just want to give this guy a hug. You just feel sort of bad for him. You want to give him a hug or a margarita or something. I don't know. But he is just, he is weary. He is tired. He needs, I don't know if he needs a foot massage, but something. You read this guy and you think, Wow. But when he looks at life, he is just wearied by it all. It's all so wearying. Verse 8, where he says, you know, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. What he's saying is life is so wearying, I can't even describe it. Here's a verse from the contemporary English version. Put this on your coffee cup. There is no wisdom literature on the coffee. Any Ecclesiastes that's on a coffee cup is taken out of context, typically. But this is not on a coffee cup. Verse 8 in the contemporary English version. This is how they translate it. All of life is far more boring than words can ever say. 
All of life is far more boring than work. Pull that out of the little bread box for family devotions. Let's go, gang. But that's true. Life under the sun. Here's the message. Life under the sun is so monotonous and so boring. If you just watch it pass by, it is futile, meaningless. It is wearying. I get tired just thinking about it. That's the Bible. And that's how the Bible says that is the reality of life under the sun. And that's why the early quotes I read to you from the internet forum, that's why those guys were speaking Bible. They were living under the sun and they were describing what life is really like. As a matter of fact, those guys were more in touch with scripture than many of us are. Because for us in North Dallas as Christians, we like our religion happy clappy and practical and pragmatic and we like it to work and put a smile on everybody's face. But the preacher grabs us by the throat and says, wake up, look at your life. All of this is meaningless if you are just living life under the sun, if you are not encountering God, and we'll get there in a minute. But that's what he says. The Bible says, look, it just looks like an endless cycle if we look under the sun. He goes on to say, what do we gain from our toil? Look at verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. He's saying everything, it's just what's, whatever's going to be is going to be. It's all been done before. Why even bother? Sounds like an eighth grader doesn't want to do his homework to me. You know, it doesn't matter. There's going to be more math problems. What's the use of math problems? That's what he sounds like. Verse 10, he says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. He's anticipating an argument. Someone's going to say, see, look, wait a minute. This is new. He says, it's been already and in the ages before us. I mean, certainly somebody's going to argue with this and say, say, listen, preacher, have you seen the internet? That's new. I mean, we look at the last hundred years of our lives and Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. Really? What about transportation? What about medicine? Uh, what about communication? What about cell phones and, and internet? What about comfort? What about travel? Did I say that one? What about travel? Think about, there's a lot new. What he would say is, yeah, you can have all these new things, but are people really different? I mean, come on. I read you on the internet machine, people saying exactly what he was saying thousands of years ago, which proves the point. Is there really that much of a difference? Yes, you came here in your car, not by foot. But are we really dealing with any different life issues? We're not reading a contemporary document. We're reading a document thousands of years ago. And saying, yes, there's truth in this. This is not just truth in it. This is truth. So sure, yeah, sure there's some activity and new things, but does anything really change? And then this is his crowning point, verse 11, the end of the poem. There is no remembrance of former things. Now, if you see, you have a little note in the SV. Below it says it can be former people. So there is no remembrance of former things, there is no rem- or there is no remembrance of former people, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after? Here's his big point. Look, you want to argue with me? You can argue about the sun. You can argue about the wind. Here's my crowning argument, the preacher says. My crowning argument is you don't even remember the previous generations. Now, okay, there's a few famous people we all know, we all remember, granted. But do you realize there's been billions, masses of people, you don't even know their name? You don't know where they lived. You don't know what they did. You don't know anything about them. And he says, you know what else? Uh, Nobody's going to remember you. That's that's what he says. That's what he says. I mean, here's the reality. If if he was here explaining this, here's what he would, I believe, would say, here's life under the sun. Look, you're going to die, and your family's going to be really sad. I'm not being, it's going to be very sad to your family and a few good friends. But let's just be real. You're going to have a funeral, and a bunch of people are going to come to that funeral, And except for your family and friends, the average person that comes to your funeral, he's going to come, she's going to come, they're going to pay their respects, go back to the church and eat some potato salad. They're going to go home that night. They're going to watch a sitcom. Tomorrow they're going to go to work. And a week from now, they're not even going to think about you unless they drive by your house and see. And five years from now, they're not going to think about you. And 50 years from now, no one will even know you except your name will appear in some genealogy in the family Bible or something. And 100 years from now, that'll probably even be lost. 
So is there any real meaning to all that we're going about in our life? All this work, all this activity, is anything really accomplished? And he says, here's the proof that you can't grab that breath. It's fleeting, it's sub- and it does not last. There is no remembrance, he says. Here's the reality. There's coming a generation that won't know us. But we're great. <laughs> There's coming a generation that won't know us and probably won't care about us. So what is the point of this poem? Nothing matters. Nothing is new. Life under the sun is meaningless. But that's not the whole story of the Bible, is it? That's life under the sun. The Bible gives us a whole different, as we read elsewhere in scripture, a whole different vision of life, a whole different view of life, the view of life above the sun, the view of God's perspective of life. The Bible reveals that actually there is a worldview different than Kohelet's worldview, which is the view of God who creates and God who rules and God who is present among his people. There is a, there is a, a worldview that is biblical that is totally different totally different. You see, when we see God and when we know God, we view the entire universe differently. For the preacher, the rising and setting of the sun communicates meaninglessness, empty routine, monotony, and futility. But to the person who knows God, the rising and setting of the sun communicates something totally different. Think about Psalm 19. Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2. This is a vision of life above the sun. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Here's what the psalmist says. Every time the sun comes up, God is preaching to you. Every time it comes down, God is speaking to you. The creator of the universe is is overseeing the rising and the setting of the sun. And here's what it communicates. Not monotony and meaningless, faithfulness. It communicates that God is ordering his universe and ruling over his universe and that he's granted the gift of a new day. The rising and the setting of the sun, particularly the rising in the Bible communicates this. His mercies are new every morning for the person touched by grace, for the redeemed person. The movement of the sun, so to speak, the movement of the sun is not endless, meaningless repetition. It is the faithfulness of God who rules over his creation. The glory of the one who is infinitely more powerful than that sun. The wind and the streams reveal the power of God, the hand of God. But perhaps the observation that the preacher makes that is the most grievous in terms of viewing life under the sun is that he has no place for nothing new. He has no place. In a godless universe, his poem makes a lot of sense. It's very believable in a godless universe. But if God is in fact the ruler of the universe, and if he is alive, and if the scripture is true, then the most troubling thing that the preacher says is that there's nothing new under the sun because the entire Bible points to something that happens on earth that is dramatically new. You see, the Bible reveals that God himself, the one who creates and rises and sets the sun and oversees the streams and gives life to people, that this God came to earth. You want to talk about new? The creator of it all showed up on planet earth. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is called the very wisdom of God. He comes as the very wisdom of God. He's not just speaking wisdom about God. He is the wisdom of God. And he comes and brings a new covenant so that we can relate to God based on Jesus' performance and not based on ours. He comes and dies, gives his life in our place, dies in our place, is buried and is raised, and he defeats the power of death. He forgives our sins. He defeats the power of death, and he gives us new life. There is a 
entirely new order of existence, those who have God dwelling inside of them, who have received new life, the believer in Jesus Christ. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new relationship. We don't look at the sun and say, that is some power that just, you know, just some, some, that some activity on a, on a, on a cycle. The, the sun moves like a treadmill and goes nowhere aimlessly. We say the God who oversees all of that and rules is not only the ruler of the universe, but we have a new relationship. He is now our father. Jesus has come and brought us into relationship with that God who rules and reigns so that now that God who oversees all of the universe counts the very hairs of our head, provides for us. He provides for the birds. He provides for us. He meets our needs. He cares for us. We have a new relationship with the creator of all of this. You want to talk about meaning. The God over all of this knows me and in spite of me loves me and cares for every area of my life. That's not life under the sun. That's life with God as Father in Christ. A robust view that that this perspective does not give us. God comes in Jesus Christ and gives us a new mission. Meaningless one generation to another. No, the Bible says the one generation will tell the next generation of the works of God. And each of us have a new mission to tell this good news to people all around us. There are people who are living in a trap. They are hamsters on a wheel. They are living out the gut-wrenching pain and emptiness and isolation that the preacher describes here that was his evidently as well. There are people all around us that live that way. And they're not all... Uh, they're, they're not all in a mental hospital. They live in really big houses and have really nice jobs and really pretty families. And they look like they have it all together and they're all around us. But the, the, the Bible teaches us that in their soul, everything is meaningless if they are just living life under the sun. They're gathering more stuff and they're empty. They're getting more fit and they're empty. They're making more money and they're empty. And so there are people all around us, and we talk about meaning. We have the high privilege and calling to take the message that Jesus gives meaning to life and that there is no meaning outside of life. And if you're honest, you will acknowledge that. And if you keep self-medicating with sex and booze and drugs and material things and morality and a godless, Christless, religious church experience, if you keep doing that kind of stuff, you may hide yourself for a minute from the pain, but you're going to wake up someday like Solomon did at the end of his life and say, what have I done? I chased it all, and I have nothing. I grabbed, and I have nothing. Jesus comes and gives us a new mission. He gives us a new purpose, and this is the glory of the Bible. I've got to finish here quick. This is the glory of the Bible is that the preacher has no purpose. Everything is meaningless. But the Bible says that once we meet Christ, Romans 12 says, we are living sacrifices. Do you know what that means? It means that all of life is worship. It means that in Christ, every activity, there is no meaningless activity in life. It means that all of life is filled with way more meaning than we even knew. It means that everything you do in Christ intentionally for the glory of God matters, and it matters eternally. After all the generations are gone, it matters because it is for God. Consider this verse, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul writes that everything we do, whatever words, whatever deeds, done in the name of Jesus, done as a believer in Jesus, done for the glory of Jesus, we can give thanks to God the Father through him. And that means mowing your lawn is not meaningless because it's just going to grow again, and we mow and it grows, and we mow and it grows, and we mow and it grows. Everything is vanity. No, we're mowing for the glory of God. We're giving thanks to God for the privilege of the growth that he brings. We are taking dominion over his planet that he has given us. We are ruling and reigning in Christ. The smallest act, the changing of a child's diaper, 
is not meaningless. Well, he's just going to poop again. Yeah, he is. And that can feel pretty meaningless in a day where you're doing that multiple times. I get it. I get it. And we feel for the single moms in the room for whom that feels like your life. And that can feel vanity at points. But you are serving the next generation. One generation proclaiming to the next the glory of God. That is filled with meaning. Filled with meaning. 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul is saying you can eat a burger and glorify God. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, with thanksgiving, with celebration. See, here's the reality we see in Ecclesiastes. The gifts of God and the ability to enjoy the gifts of God are two separate things. For the Christian who knows Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, basing our life on the Word, the gifts of God, a hamburger, cutting the lawn, a baby, the gifts of God come with the ability to appreciate and enjoy the giver of the gifts of God so that it's not meaningless. It's the hand of our Father. This is our Father's world, and we live, all of life can be lived for his glory. The smallest act done with intentionality can have great meaning and bring glory to God. Jesus says, you take care of a needy person, you've done it unto me. Giving a meal, giving physical care, giving help to someone suffering, Jesus says, you're doing that to me. Name an act of more meaning than doing something directly to and for Jesus. And I love Paul in 1 Corinthians. I've got to give you another verse, 1 Corinthians 15. He just takes the vain thing and turns it around. Look what he says. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has defeated sin. This is about the resurrection. Jesus is alive. Therefore, my beloved brothers, this is what he says. Be steadfast. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Be immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. Look at that phrase. In the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's the contrast. In the Lord your labor is not in vain. Under the sun your labor is in vain. That is the biblical dichotomy. In the Lord, if you know Christ, if you are redeemed by Christ, if you are living in the grace of Jesus, then all of life matters. In the Lord, it is not in vain, so press on. As Koheleth says, though, under the sun, it's meaningless repetition. It's so boring, I can't even tell you how boring it is. And then you die, and nobody remembers. That's the contrast. Biblical worldview, then you die, and one day you're resurrected to spend eternity before the Lord who gave himself for you. In the, under the sun, in the Lord. If you're here today and you've never met Jesus, you are living life under the sun. And you may hide the pain and the emptiness, but in your most honest moment, when it is you in your bedroom going to sleep at night and no one else is there and you're thinking about your life, if you're really honest, you will say that you live with this thought, there must be more. That is, that is true. You are created with a capacity for more. You're created to know God. And what separates you from knowing God is your sin. You have disobeyed God's word. I have disobeyed. Everyone in this room has disobeyed God. And so we are under a curse. We are separated from God. We are in death and darkness. But you can come to Jesus Christ and believe in him. He'll forgive your sins and give you new life. Today, you can turn to Jesus and say, I, I believe I'm separated from you because of my sin. And my, the meaninglessness of my existence is ultimately my own fault. And I come back and I ask for your forgiveness. Ask you to give me new life. He'll forgive you. He will give you new life. Your life will not be perfect. You will still struggle. We all struggle. But you will have a foundational confidence that I know, I know the God who created me. My sins are forgiven. I'm reconciled to God. I have a Father, the Heavenly Father. There's others of us in the room that are already Christians. But the reality is that it's just easy for us to look other places 
It's just easy for us to think, well, yes, I know Jesus, but I'm really pursuing money. I'm really pursuing career. That's where life is found. I'm really pursuing sex. I'm really pursuing success. I'm really pursuing beauty. I'm really pursuing knowledge. I'm really pursuing pleasure. I'm really pursuing the, uh, being respected by others. I'm really pursuing accomplishments. And so it's possible to be a Christian and rather than living for the glory of God, stepping on the treadmill or the hamster in a wheel and start doing this deal. And so you feel empty. I feel empty. There's times where we feel dry and empty and meaningless and like we're just going through the motions. And I think the antidote for that, I'm glad you're here. We're going to talk about this for the next number of months. The the answer is to realize that and deconstruct, tear apart, knock the props out from that worldview and say, this is going nowhere. And turning afresh to God, asking forgiveness and asking him to infuse our lives with fresh meaning, fresh hope in Jesus Christ. Let's ask God to open our eyes afresh. I mean, I've been experiencing this myself where I'm just looking at some very basic responsibilities in my life. I sat down with the pastors this week and talked to them about what I was sensing. And I'm just sensing God calling me to back to some things with fresh faith and fresh life. I'm experiencing a renewal in my own life right now because I think I've just been on a treadmill, not really intentionally thinking about what I'm doing and what, why it matters. God has that for all of us. If you're putting your hopes in other places, oh, listen to Ecclesiastes. He's an old man who's had a ton of money and a ton of sex and a ton of houses, a ton of kids, a ton of legacy, a ton of accomplishment. And here's his warning. Vanity. It's all vanities. But his warning is also an invitation. It's an invitation to turn from vanity and turn to life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize in our own hearts the angst of an empty life. Lord, there may be some in the room that don't even know you today. They don't even know Jesus Christ. And I pray right now, Lord, would you in your grace, come down and and open their eyes and give them new life right now. We can't do that. Would you just give them new life? Would you give them a hope? Would you show them your fatherly love and care? Would you break into the darkness and the isolation and the emptiness and the meaninglessness and explode on them with meaning that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that your death and resurrection changes everything. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.